According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're here for the purpose of growth. Once again, join me in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 17. We uh, got an introduction to this last week and uh, spent our time evaluating the, just the first couple of verses here with respect to stumbling blocks. We want to be able to make some progress today in new ground as we Really, this episode takes us all the way down through verse 10. Lessons on service, faith, and influence from Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. All right, before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer so that as believer priests, we are not defiling his courts or trampling his courts, shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this day and for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have to assemble together. Uh, Father, it is a grace provision, uh, and this wonderful provision you've made available for us in our morning uh, midweek service. We ask for your blessing upon us as we study the truth of your word and open the eyes of our understanding to understand uh, things that pertain to stumbling blocks or uh, that pertain to forgiveness and uh, and other uh, features that we need on a daily basis. I thank you, Father, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 17, Lessons on Service, Faith, and Influence. This is episode 25 in the uh, last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus. So we are uh, approaching the conclusion to this and getting ready for the Passion Week uh, as far as that goes. Uh, our next episode, by the way, we got coming up in episode 26 is the resurrection of Lazarus uh, from John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. So that gets you an idea how close we are to uh, to the cross and uh, the healing of the ten lepers, the parable of the persistent widow, um, the doctrine on divorce from Matthew 19. These are all the, the episodes that we have coming up. All right, last week we went through main point one at this phase of ministry. As this phase of ministry winds down, four common messages are recapped. And uh, this was a feature common as well in the Galilean ministry. And when I got to thinking about it, I went back even earlier and observed this as a pattern. That when Christ was getting ready to kind of wind down one stage and move on to something else, he would review. He would recap uh, certain major issues. And uh, I find that to be an interesting pattern. So uh, here we see a series of events, a series of lessons uh, starting with stumbling blocks and being on the alert and forgiveness and uh, the need for increased faith and uh, all of these that nothing here is truly new in the sense of uh, things that he has not taught before he's taught all of these uh, doctrines before but he's reinforcing them in the minds of his disciples before they're faced to uh, well let's face it they're going to have to function in the christian way of life after he departs and so having these matters reinforced for them becomes becomes important. All right, the second point of study then, stumbling blocks are inevitable. Stumbling blocks are inevitable. And this is not a license or an excuse to just throw up your hands and say, oh, well, they're going to come anyway. I don't have to worry about it uh, causing my brother to stumble. No, you do have to worry about causing your brother to stumble. Be very concerned about it. Uh, they are inevitable. They have to come. Uh, just make sure, as far as it depends on you, that you are not the stumbling block. See, just because they're going to happen doesn't mean uh, that you have to be a part of it, right? It's like saying it's inevitable that, uh, you know, something's going to happen. It doesn't mean you have to participate exactly, all right, in any event. Uh, in Matthew's text, we're told that they must come. 
That's the language in Matthew 18 uh, and verse 7. Uh, it's not a typo on the screen. We have a parallel in Luke 17, verses 1 and 2, that's paralleled with Matthew 18, verses 7 and 6. And that's not a typo. Uh, those verses are listed in reverse order intentionally because um, they are expressed uh, in reverse order uh, in contrast between uh, Luke and Matthew. So we start with the, um, well, what we have here, we have the uh, inevitability of the stumbling blocks in verse 1, and then we have the warning about the millstone in verse 2. In Matthew, it's the other way around. The, the millstone comes uh, and then the uh, in verse 6, and then the stumbling block uh, principle is taught in verse 7. Anyway, the language is a little bit different. In Matthew, we're told that they must come. It's a have to. It is uh, part of the necessities of, uh, of the Christian walk, the necessities of this, uh, the, the plan of God. By creating a, a, a volitional realm of existence, then there will be stumbling blocks. Um, the language is a little bit different in Luke's text. In fact, I think it's more powerful in Luke's text because it says, literally, it is impossible for st- stumbling blocks not to come. It is impossible for them not to come. So, of course, you and I are going to um, encounter them uh, in the process of our Christian walk. Again, the principle, though, being uh, woe to the one through whom the stumbling blocks come, through whom they come. You understand that you are a conduit. If something is coming through you, then you're not the source. All right. Um, my house uh, receives water from the city of Austin. Actually, that's not true. We get water from the local mud out there, but that's all right. Uh, water comes through the pipes to my house. Okay, The pipes don't produce the water. The pipes are simply the conduit through which the, uh, the water comes, you understand. All right. Do we have someone in the nursery today? Okay. Just checking. Okay. Um, so you understand the idea of a conduit, the language of through, because that's the language we have here. Uh, woe to him through whom they come. And a person that may be the agent of a stumbling block is functionally not really the stumbling block. He's simply the pipe, the conduit, the through whom. Because you understand our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers and authorities, principalities and powers, the demonic forces that are uh, engineering every conflict that we face in this uh, in this fallen world. So they may use people as their dupes, as their tools, uh, as their useful idiots for, uh, for different things that they're involved with. Um, and I think that the language here of through whom uh, reinforces that principle. Under point B, that being said, be that as it may, nevertheless, we have here one of the strongest buts in, uh, in the, the New Testament. And uh, maybe it's over the top to be all wrapped up over a uh, conjunction. All right. However, that being said, let me uh, emphasize the nature of this contrast. There are there are ands and ifs and buts. Uh, this one, though, is rather unique. This one is not the standard but or an Allah or it's a, it's a very strong one. It's one that actually reinforces what comes up front. OK, uh, a lot of uh, buts deny what's up front. And so you might say, well. Here's this, but 
there's that. And, and what we're doing with the but is that we're kind of dismissing the early stuff and we're stressing the later stuff, right? I mean, I guess I can come up with an example on that. Uh, however, here, this, this is a good, the, I think I like the translation, be that as it may, right? Um, or nevertheless, Ralph, uh, Pastor Ralph used to always use be that as it may. It was his kind of idiom that he was very fond of. Be that as it may. And what that does is it absolutely reinforces the truth of what precedes it. Okay? And we do this all the time. We say, okay, somebody is complaining about something. You say, all right, I understand that. I appreciate that. I accept what you're telling me. Now, that being true, let me add to that and tell you something contrary. Okay? I understand this was going on. Yes, I accept that that was what was happening. However, here's what needs to happen now. And that's what we see here. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but all that being said, be that as it may, as true as that is, uh, fully understanding that we live in a fallen world with conflict raging all around us, don't let you be the one that produces the stumbling block. Woe to the one through whom the stumbling block comes. So as true as that is, Woe is still God's divine pronouncement. And whether you're studying the, uh, the Greek ui or you're studying the Septuagint, either hoi or oi from the Hebrew, uh, any reference of woe is bad news. Anytime Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel, pronounces woe, uh, judgment is being applied. They are under divine discipline. Bad things are happening. And when God pronounces woe, he means it. He absolutely means it. And this brings us now to the new material under point C. The instrument of stumbling, the conduit. Again, you say, well, it's not my fault. I'm not producing it. Well, you're the conduit. And you're allowing yourself to be a tool of what the devil uses to trip up a brother in Christ. You're going to get hammered for that. The instrument of stumbling would profit more through their own horrible execution. And you say, how could it be better to be drowned? How could it be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the depths of the sea? That doesn't sound good. And it's not. It's not supposed to be good. It's supposed to be unthinkable. And if it's unthinkable, and yet it's described as being better than the alternative, well, then how unthinkable is that? <laughs> right? This is the way that God communicates things that are beyond our ability to grasp. He puts out something there that's just unthinkable. And then describes something as being worse. And then our imaginations can simply fill in the blanks and, and realize, you know what, we don't even wanna we don't even wanna process that. My thought my thought patterns don't even want to finish that thought. I don't even want to think that through. Right? It's like the language in the Old Testament, all the, the warfare passages and all the horrible things that are described when a city is conquered. You know, babies being dashed against the rocks or, or women being ravaged. I mean, there's some brutal, brutal uh, expressions in the Old Testament about uh, defeated uh, armies or defeated nations and, and terrible things that happen there. And that's designed as a purpose, uh, on purpose, it's designed to communicate what is otherwise for us absolutely unthinkable. And then going a step further and saying, 
to Israel in that case, you know, that your adultery against your spiritual adultery against God and your rejection of his word and uh, that that uh, that's how unthinkable it is for the Lord. Okay, so this is the kind of language that we deal with. Now, how can this possibly be better? It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that that he would cause one of these little ones to stop. I mean, just imagine how hopeless that is. You know, I mean, you, you're made to walk the plank or whatever, and, and, and this thing is wrapped around you, and you know you're going to sink. And so, you know, you take the deepest breath you can. <laughs> How deep is that? Whatever. And then they push you off. And you plunge. And you plunge. And you plunge. And your eyes are looking around or whatever. If you, you know, I don't, I'm crummy opening my eyes underwater. But let's just say you open your eyes underwater and you're looking around and you're going down, down, down. And how long can you hold your breath? Knowing what's going to happen. See? That's horrible. Absolutely. So, in fact, there's even uh, uh, medical descriptions of drowning where you actually have alert conscious awareness in your thinking process while the water fills your lungs, while you're, you're... flooded internally and the horrible shutdown of your body and the different things there that a drowning victim is physically alive longer than some folks might recognize even to the point of the the uh, the death itself so anyway let's try to make things more pleasant here um scripture we got a lot of scripture let's start with deuteronomy there's a whole string of these in deuteronomy but the language of uh why is it better why is it better is it better Personally, is it better experientially? What's interesting is the reason why it's better is because as unpleasant as it is, as horrendous as it is, let me know, I'm not going to give it away. I'll make you figure it out. Deuteronomy 13. Let's read some verses and then you're going to see why is it better to be drowned? Why is it better to die the sin and a death? Why is it better for God to whoop you in divine discipline than to continue to be a stumbling block tripping believers up. All right, Deuteronomy 13, 11, 17, 13, 19, 20, 21, 21. Those are the Deuteronomy references and then we'll get into our New Testament with Acts 5, verses 5 and 11. And uh, that's the Ananias and Sapphira chapter. And then 1 Timothy 5, 20. And that, uh, by the time we get there, it should be overwhelmingly obvious what we're dealing with all right deuteronomy 13 11 a final verse in a long paragraph um this is talking about all the way back to verse six your brother your mother's son or your son or daughter or the wife you cherish or your friend who is as your soul if any of those you know people that are family close to you uh, if they entice you secretly saying let us go and serve other gods If there's someone dear to you that wants you to abandon Bible class, what choice do you make? Well, don't listen. And don't feel sorry for him. Your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Now, we've got a different application in our stewardship, of course, uh, you know, as far as that goes. But they are a covenant nation and a member of their covenant nation that was trying to influence a family, clan, tribe, or, or the nation of Israel to rebel against Yahweh Elohim, was to be executed. See, now, you know, if it's a family member today trying to influence me to do whatever, I just tell them no, and, uh, you know, I'll 
come when I can, but I've got priorities. We'll be in Bible class and, and that sort of thing. Anyway, there's uh, other things here. Uh, you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be the first against him to put him to death. The principle of casting the first stone that the witnesses uh, to the capital punishment offense had to be the first ones uh, that would be uh, uh, performing the, uh, the execution. And then afterward, the hand of all the people. So you shall stone him to death because he has sought to seduce you from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And you say, okay, I get that. He's, he's defiant. He's doing bad things. And under the law, he's got to be executed. I get that. But notice, it goes even a step beyond. The punishment not only uh, is you know vengeance from the hand of the Lord and consequences for actions, but it also, what happens here in verse 11, then all Israel will hear and be afraid and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. There is a benefit in the application of capital punishment described here in Scripture as making somebody else think twice. Make somebody else evaluate. Wait a minute. That doesn't look very pleasant, <laughs> right? Those are consequences I don't want to. I don't want to face. Okay, this is the um, the deterrent factor to swift, immediate, blind justice, and it's laid out as being the doctrinal principle of Scripture. Now, liberals today, of course, reject it. They they tell you, oh, there's no deterrence, there's no value. They they create models and mathematical formulas and statistics and. They, uh, they'll tell you till you're blue in the face, that uh, till they're blue in the face, that, that capital punishment has no deterrent value. And that's their, you know, learned scientific statistical formula. It's the same kind of approach that tells you about global warming and all kinds of other myths I don't believe in either, as far as that goes, and evolution and all the rest. Um, God says that Others will think twice. And that's what it says here. All Israel will hear and be afraid. So consider how that's a benefit. Recognize how the application of God's wrath is a benefit and actually can bear some fruit in certain ways. All right, a few chapters later then, Deuteronomy 17, 13. And here's... Um, the man who acts presumptuously by not listening to the priest, who stands there to serve the Lord your God, nor to the judge, uh, that man shall die, thus he shall purge the evil from Israel. Then all the people will hear and be afraid and will not act presumptuously again. Now consider, particularly in the early establishment of Israel as a nation, when, how quick that justice came. When, when fire came from heaven and consumed Nadab and Abihu, that wasn't just a couple of, uh, you know, random schmucks or, or heretics or whatever that deserved to die. They were the sons of the high priest. They were the sons of Aaron. Nadab was in line to be the next high priest after the death of Aaron. And so the fact that Nadab and Abihu were, were struck immediately, the fact that uh, that leaves Eleazar and Ithamar as kind of the... Uh, first and second son. Now they got promoted from third and fourth son to first and second son. Um, shows there's no partiality. If the son of the high priest is getting it, you know. If if Aaron and Miriam are struck with leprosy, 
as they were when they spoke against Moses. You know that, uh, that this is the nature. And I think that's why with in the case of uh, Ananias and Sapphira, likewise, Acts chapter 5, you're talking about the very foundation of the church. You're talking about an example very early when they were starting to manipulate things with uh, money and building funds and different things and pride. And God said, no, we're not going to let that happen. We're going to set the tone right here, right now. And they died the sin and the death as an example for the entirety of the church age to, to learn from. Well, well, we'll be there momentarily. All right. So all the people will hear and be afraid and will not act presumptuously again. It is a it is a deterrent. When you observe discipline in the life of somebody else, it is a deterrent. See, I think uh, that's why in my youth I was permitted to uh, to see some things and learn some things. And I didn't know why. I was just a teenager. Why? Why? Um, uh, was I allowed such an inside view of uh, my pastor, for example, and his family and his, uh, you know, why was he over uh, my parents' house every Friday night? Why was uh, my dad as close to him as he was? And why was I allowed to see certain things as a teenager? And then why, when he got involved in some issues there and lost his ministry, nearly lost his marriage, nearly lost his family? Why did I get it? Why did I see all that? Okay. Now, I'm not gossiping because... It's all publicly known, and he's with the Lord now, and he doesn't care. <laughs> he, he wants me to tell these stories and, uh, and to learn from them in, uh, in all these ways. All right. So, uh, let me move on to a better thought. <laughs> all right. Yeah, I'm not going to expand on that anymore. All right. Chapter 19, verse 20. Chapter 19 and verse 20. Although I will say, let me tell my deacons this. <laughs> if any young lady starts sitting here in the front row with skimpy miniskirts and outfits and stuff, that's got to stop. That's right. <laughs> that's got to stop. All right. 19.20. Deuteronomy 19.20. Um, here again, uh, a single witness, uh, there's context. Backing up to verse 15, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity. Uh, it's on the evidence of two or three that a matter shall be confirmed. A malicious witness, someone that's just uh, fabricating evidence or testifying falsely. Um, both the men who have uh, the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judges will be in office in those days. Here's, uh, here's their lie detector. Here's their polygraph mechanism. It's called the omniscient God of the universe. All right. And uh, we don't have that today in terms of our uh, judicial system. Uh, we have, uh, you know, a system to try with uh, a jury of your peers to try to determine facts. And even then, of course, evidence can be fabricated. Lies can be told and, and people can be wrongfully com uh, convicted. It happens when you're dealing with flawed human beings in a process. We'll look forward to the millennium when we have the uh, omniscient God of the universe seated on the throne of, uh, of uh, David. And uh, the Jewish people all in prophetic office. It's going to be hard to, to uh, deceive things at that point. In fact, it's going to be impossible. <clears throat> the judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness and he's acted his brother falsely, you shall do to him just as he is intended to do to his brother. So whatever the penalty would have been, 
which means if the penalty would have been the death penalty, then he gets the death penalty. If the penalty would have been uh, you know, a monetary fine, then he gets the monetary fine. Whatever it would have been. Whatever it was he was seeking to have happen against the, the person there is what comes back on his own head. This is what the, the reverse compound discipline is all about, that principle of Scripture. And so uh, you shall do to him just as he is intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. See, this is one of the benefits and the effects. This is why it's better, uh, rather than being a stumbling block, it's better that you just die the sinner to death. Because at least uh, removing you from the, the picture will uh, have a cleansing benefit to the, uh, to the corporate body that you're being pulled out of. And you haven't been bearing fruit in years, so you might as well bear some fruit today by getting out of here. Die in the sin and the death, and your flock is going to be benefited by your absence. Kind of cold and heartless, don't you think? No, it's truth. Because leaven, a little leaven, can leaven the entire lump. And instead of poisoning a flock, God has mercy on that flock and gets you out of it. The rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Man, you see what happens to false witnesses? Ooh, don't want to be part of that. Thus you shall not show pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That's the principle under law. All right, uh, 2121, the last of the references here in Deuteronomy. So you think something that God... Uh, saw fit to communicate four separate times in the same book. Do you think that has uh, an, an emphasis? You know, does that grab your attention? 2121. And in this case, this is a passage I think, uh, you know, every teenager ought to just write out. You ought to just, you know, make every teenager copy their own handwritten uh, text of Deuteronomy 21. Be useful. Um, but if any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them. What happens when a rebellious teenager is beyond the point where uh, parental discipline is now ineffective? They're just beyond that realm. Well, then it goes to the city. The father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of the city, the gateway of his hometown. And they shall say to the elders of the city, The son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Now, is it easy for parents to admit that? No. But, uh, you know, who said parenting is easy anyway, right? And then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. Shall stone him to death. And you say, oh, my, I could never do that. I could never turn my child over to the city that way. I could never... Um, well, evaluate. What are you doing when you allow your, your child to destroy their soul? So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it in fear. See, now with, with this principle applied consistently and effectively, uh, how often does it have to be applied? Not very, no. One or two examples sets the uh, uh, principle and the rest figure it out. All right. They don't have the gang problems that uh, that we have roaming the streets in our culture today. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death, so you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it and fear. 
all Israel will hear of it and fear. You know, it's uh, I've I've known women that um, you know have even prayed uh, in the course of their pregnancy that if this uh, was a child who was going to come into the world and not accept Christ as their Savior and live as an unbeliever, then uh, their prayer was for for miscarriage, for for the loss of that child in the womb, rather than come into physical life and and live the life of misery and all that. You know, uh, and that's a that's an interesting perspective for a prayer ministry for a woman carrying a child. Something I've thought about for years and years. All right. Well, anyway, those are the examples there in Deuteronomy. Uh, Acts five. It's not just simply a. Uh, this isn't a cold, heartless, ugly, uh, vicious. Uh, aspect of mosaic law where we just kind of uh let out our breath with a big sigh of relief and and uh you know rub the sweat off our brow and say whoo sure glad we're under grace now not under law that's a, oh man that, that's a terrible way to live well guess what as a principle god's divine discipline is still applicable in the church age the age of grace and it's applied in the working of divine discipline in the corporate assembly of a local church. And it is just as valid. It is just as true today. We are to learn when your brother is under God's hand of wrath, we better learn and be afraid. Because we don't want to be next. And we better be, it ought to motivate us to, uh, to be praying for their restoration. So Acts 5, 1 Timothy 5, and I think I'll add to that here, um, Galatians chapter 6, just so that we don't... Uh, we don't have the wrong impression. But let's start with Acts 5, 5 and 11. And, and we're familiar with this. The, uh, the disciples, the Christians were absolutely being persecuted. And to the point of having property seized, the point of having uh, uh, being financially ruined, being left destitute. Uh, the viciousness you can imagine if uh, you know if you're a part of a tribal culture, tribes, clans, families, in, in, in terms of your land grant, in terms of your inheritance, in terms of all that, and then uh, you're expelled as being a heretic, as being uh, you're denying uh, Mosaic law, you're you're pursuing you know what the Jews felt was the the heresy of of that Nazarene sect, and uh, and so they they just leave you destitute, they they uh, expel you from the clan, they expel you from the family, you've got no more property, no more wealth, and, and you're just left with nothing. Uh, there, in, in these difficult times, uh, Christians developed a sacrificial love uh, to sell things and, and, and put things in communal trust uh, for the benefit of everybody. And that's not, uh, that's not a glorification of, of Marxist communism in any respect, although they claim that. Uh, it was not communism. It was not, was not any kind of a community uh, thing it was simply self-defense by the body of Christ to, to minister to one another during these times. And uh, one of the early ones who did this was the man that was renamed Barnabas. Um, birth name was Joseph. He was from the tribe of Levi, and he did. He had tremendous estates, estates in Cyprus, estates that were not at risk. Property that could not have been seized by the Sanhedrin. He was in an entirely separate Roman jurisdiction. And he was uh, very safe, but he sold it anyway. Liquidated the, the real estate holdings so that he could uh, provide for 
the body of Christ. That's his love for the body of Christ and tremendous maturity in a gift of giving and in a, in a real application. There. And that's what happens here at the end of chapter 4. And so uh, he owned this tract of land. He sold it, brought it the, the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Well, Ananias and Sapphira uh, succumbed to pride. And uh, Satan was whispering to them that they could really, really make a name for themselves. They could, uh, I mean, literally make a name for themselves. They might score a name like Barnabas scored a name, right? <laughs> okay. That, man, if they, were, if they brought a sizable donation, they could be well-known, beloved by the, uh, you know, apostles and different things. So that's the background on this. And Ananias and Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. They kept back some of the price for themselves, which isn't, there's nothing wrong with. None at all. It's theirs. They can do whatever they want with it. But the idea is, is that they're going to uh, cook the books and, and lie about it. They sold it for this amount, but they, they diminish that. And they keep back a kickback for themselves. And then they say, oh, this is the entirety of it. We're giving all we have. Is... Uh, is where the deceit comes in. They bring a portion of it. He laid it at the apostles' feet, trying to act all Barnabas on them, and it just was not legitimate. It was carnal. It was demonic. Satan was motivating that. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? There's no reason for it, he says. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not under your control? It's yours. You want to keep some of it? Keep it. You want to keep all of it? Keep it. This is the, the want-tos of the Christian way of life. What do you want to give? You want to give 10%? It's not a tithe where you have to give 10%. What do you want to give? You want to give 10? Great. You want to give 20? Great. You want to give 100? What do you want to do? But whatever you do, don't give 10 and then act like it's 100 and try to gain uh, points with people. Was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And it's interesting. Satan filled your heart to lie, and then they conceived it. Remember, sin in James chapter 1 is a conception process. Babies don't just show up someday for no reason. Something prompted it, caused it, fertilized it, <laughs> conceived it, and then it cooked for nine months. Okay? Well, not cooked, you know gestated, grew, what, you know. Point being incubated. Yeah, there you are. Good term. Um, it didn't just happen like, oh my goodness, here's a baby. How'd that happen? Okay. So Satan filled their hearts, working those systems of pride, whispering those lies and all the rest of it. And then uh, conceived. And then they, uh, you know, all the adversary really had to do was just keep the keep the uh, pride thing going, and it was a fertile uh, soul at that point. Of course, it's going to conceive, and so they come up with this idea, and they act on it. You know, to be honest, Satan doesn't really care what you choose to do with your pride. As long as he's uh, successfully stirred up a prideful heart, you can do whatever you want to do in your pride. He doesn't care. As long as you're operating under pride, he's pleased because you're imitating him. You're serving him. So you've not lied to man, but to God. This, here's extra credit for you. You want, you want some Bible school stuff? Right here. Verse 3, you lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, you lied to God. 
This is a very clear proof of the deity of the Holy Spirit. If there's anyone that ever uh, says, well, you know, they're trying to deny the personhood of the Holy Spirit or deny the deity of the Holy Spirit, this is one of the clearest proof texts that you can point anybody to and say, look, lying to the Holy Spirit, lying to God, Holy Spirit is God. And uh, it's a good text there in that regard. All right. So as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. There's the, the same thing we saw in Deuteronomy. Divine discipline hit somebody. And those that live to observe it <laughs> go, uh-oh, wait a minute. Don't want to do that. Okay? Don't want to do that. So the young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. There's great deacon responsibility in the early church. Okay? Uh, they weren't deacons yet until chapter 6, but you got the principle there. You got the, you know... Young, healthy guys with uh, all the muscles and energy say, yeah, would you take this corpse out of here? Now, there lapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And this is now her chance. See, this is like this is like the Lord going to Cain and giving Cain a chance to confess. Or going to Adam and saying, Adam, what have you done? Have you eaten of that fruit? See, God gives even sinners opportunities, even unbelievers like Cain, or carnal believers, say, giving them opportunity to come clean, to confess. Like when Nathan exposed David and so forth. And so here's Sapphira, three hours later. What was she doing for those three hours? Any ideas? I think she hit them all with some of the funds that they skimmed off. And the, Yeah, <laughs> I'm just saying. Um <laughs> I know, I'm sexist. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> and Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And this is her chance, if she's in fellowship, if she's under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to just come clean and say, No. You know? This is like Sarah. Abraham said, uh, She's my sister. And Sarah, Yep, I'm his sister. You know, she went along with a lie. Not convicted to, uh, anyway, yeah, that was the price. Yeah, that's what we sold it for. So Peter said to her, why is it you have agreed together? The conspiracy in your carnality. You have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. And they will carry you out as well. That, that language is so powerful. It's like the language when the Lord was rebuking Cain. He said, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. And the, the pallbearers that just finished, uh, you know, burying your husband, they're just now making it back. Now it's your turn. Immediately she fell at his feet, breathed her last. The young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out, buried her beside her husband. And great fear, here's the point again, verse 11, great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. So fruit gets born. Christ is glorified. Believers are warned. Benefit happens. That's why it would be better if a heavy millstone were tied around your neck and cast in the depths of the sea than that you should cause one of these little ones to stumble. At least in your sin and a death execution, you can bear some kind of fruit and another believer is going to get warned. Another believer could be warned. 
So there's a church age application there, you understand. Likewise, 1 Timothy 5.20. This uh, actually applies to elders in a church. As I mentioned, my childhood pastor uh, came under church discipline. Uh, for Rightfully so. For uh, activity that uh, dishonored Christ and discredited the ministry and um, failed to attain to the qualification standards of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And on that basis, he was subject to the, the discipline of the assembly. And, and that was right. That was absolutely right as that happens. Then, of course, something else later on, uh, after repentance, when he was not restored, then that was wrong. And I'm going to expand upon that here in a moment. That's why I said add Galatians chapter 6 to your... Uh, to your scripture list there. But in First uh, Timothy chapter 5, you'll notice uh, verse 17 says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. It's the principle of uh, support, the principle of uh, financial blessings, among other things. Especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Not every elder is going to be a preacher or a teacher, but the ones that are ministering the Word of God are the ones that should be first under consideration for the uh, financial support as the, the ministry can uh, provide for that. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. That's the, the principle there. But then it also goes on to say, here's another benefit. That if, if you can, of course, if the flock is large enough, and if the flock can support a pastor, then it, it ought to. The congregation will benefit if they do see. That's what Lost Pines is praying for now. They, when they want to, they're established, they're a lampstand, but they're small. Their pastor is still working outside the church. And, and that, but when they grow, as they add families, then priority is to, to free Pastor Cliff away from the workplace. So uh, just consider how much more steady he can do when he's not working 40 hours a week and, and driving 10 hours a week and all the rest of that. Think how much study time that is. And the flock benefits from that. You bet the flock benefits from that. Well, here's another benefit. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. There is a privilege, a protection that is offered to the shepherd, to the elders. Okay, He's not immune from church discipline. However, in order to shield him from baseless accusations and slander, which of course is the bread and butter of our adversary, um that uh, you make certain that there are the two or three witnesses of it, like under law, two or three witnesses were mandatory before you put anybody to death. Okay, In the New Testament, under grace, in the application of church discipline, two or three is the step that you have to be, you have to start with in the realm of church discipline, see, when it comes to an elder, when it comes to, the, uh, of course, a pastor as an elder or other elders in the church. So, what, what are we saying there? Remember, in the, in the process of church discipline, the first step, though, was the one-on-one rebuke. The first step, if, if your brother sins, you go to him privately, one-on-one, and uh, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he does not listen to you, then you take along one or two more, right? You go to step two, which is the two or three. And then you come alongside with two or three, and you rebuke your brother. And if he doesn't listen, well, then you tell it to the elders, you tell it to the congregation. And, and so you have these steps along the way. And eventually, of course, the man gets... Removed from the congregation as the as the last resort of church discipline. Okay, but what do we see here? 
Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. In other words, this now becomes step one. Step one is when you're at that two or three stage. When, and, and this is what helps to protect the elder from the frivolous uh, accusations of, of different things that the adversary would just love to start uh, starting rumors and spreading different things and things of that nature. Now, is he immune? What if the, the, the facts are confirmed? You know, you've got the witnesses and it's, it's obvious. Here's what the elders involved in. It's, it's horrible. Well, then take action. See, verse 19 doesn't say never receive an accusation against any elder because he's a dictator. What he says goes and you no. Those who continue in sin. Now, notice those who continue in sin. What does that mean? That means that you've confronted him. You've given him a repentance opportunity. He has an opportunity right there to say, oh my, you're right. I'm guilty. I'm walking wrong. And I want to change. I want to stop that. I want to confess. I want to make things right. I'm going to stop right here, right now. No more. It's over. You realize that? Those who continue in sin. That is so powerful. And most churches today never take that step. Ever. Take that step. Because in their book... The minute the accusation gets made and the minute we got proof, boom. Wrath of whatever, okay? It doesn't say those who continue in sin. Don't notice that. Those who continue in sin. Well, what if he stops? What if he's listened? What if he's repentant? What if he... Do you restore such a one? Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that's where it goes immediately to the entire congregation like it does in the other example I was telling you. So that the rest also will be fearful. The rest also will be fearful. See, the elder is not immune. He's subject to church discipline just like everybody else is subject to church discipline. But just as he's not immune from church discipline, neither is he exempt from repentance opportunities. And that's huge. I tell you, that is so huge because churches today will not afford a pastor a repentance opportunity. It is just immediate. Oh, no question. You did this. Goodbye. And that's uh, it breaks the heart. Because the repentance opportunity has to be there. They're rewriting verse 20. It's like those who you catch, get rid of them. It's not what it says. Those who continue in sin. They must be given the repentance opportunity. And this is where, um, in the uh, case of my childhood pastor, they failed. They absolutely failed. And even after, uh, I think it was about 13 weeks in the uh, clinic where he uh, he was alcoholic and, and he got off alcohol. And um, among other things, I mean, that was one issue. That was the, the chemical addiction issue. Uh, the other issues, of course, were sin issues. And... In any event, uh, once he was off the alcohol and back in the light and in fellowship and uh, trying to restore things with his wife, um, they were actively hiring uh, attorneys to, uh, to help pave the way for her to divorce him. <laughs> Again, I have no gossip. I'm not, uh, I'm not tearing anyone down. I'm just saying God blessed me in my childhood, in my 
teenage years, I suppose, not childhood. Um, God blessed me to see these things. I had no clue I was going to be a pastor someday, but um, part of his grace in allowing me to see some things and train and prepare before I knew I was training and preparing. So, Galatians chapter 6. It's not on the screen, but it is. Uh, it needs to be. So we learn from God's wrath. We learn from God's discipline. We are fearful of um, imitating that activity. But we cannot be prideful about not imitating that activity. Does that make sense? (laughs) I want to be fearful of what I see them doing. Okay. And we've had it in this church. We've had it uh, the history of this church. A church that had four pastors. And the second pastor got in trouble. That's, that's part of our heritage. That's part of this, the, the legacy of 42 years of, of, uh, of the existence of Austin Bible Church. All right. So I want to be fearful of other activity so I don't copy it. But I don't want to be prideful where I think that, um, uh, you know, I would never do it or that um, <laughs> I'm glad I didn't do it or that, I, you know, man, I'm glad I'm not them. Okay. Because if I love them, then I don't want them to be them either. Does that make sense? I mean, I don't sure I don't want to be them, but I don't want them to be them either. And that's why it says, brethren, even if. Yep, it's true. Guilty, red-handed, caught in the very act. Anyone is caught in any trespass. No question. He is guilty and you caught him right there. There they are. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. See, it's only those who continue in sin that you rebuke in the presence of all. Well, what if the very fact of their being caught is what breaks their heart? Because maybe all along the way, they've been hating themselves anyway. They've been disgusted with what they've been doing. And now, oh my goodness, now it's brutal. Now they're caught, it's public, it's shame, it's devastating. But at least, you know what, now they're not, now they're not lying all the time anymore. Now they're not covering their tracks. Now they're not, maybe now they've got the first freedom they've had in who knows how long. Oh, man, you realize what an opportunity this is? You realize what a repentance opportunity this is? They are right there, and you got a chance to throw a lifeline and snatch them back. Or you're going to come alongside and kick them off the cliff. Stomp them while they're down. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Tempted for what? Tempted to copy what they're doing? That could be part of it, yes. But also, I believe, tempted to plunge into such pride and wickedness that you will not restore no matter what. You will not restore, see? And that's a pride issue. Do you draw a line in the sand? Are there certain sins that you say, okay, you know, I can forgive this, and I can forgive this, and I can... But, oh, wait a minute. That sin is on my list of too far. Cross the line. I, I can forgive a lot, but I can't... 
forgive that. Really? You just classified your own category of sin that somehow Jesus didn't pay for on the cross. Really? God forgave him. God poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ. And you're not going to forgive. Really? You're drawing that line. Okay. You've reached a limit on your forgiveness. Well, that's going to take us right into the next point because we're going to talk about forgiveness opportunities. I think when it says looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted means that you have to face the objectivity test of humility. You have to face the test of whether you are going to pass the temptation to not be prideful against your brother, not be condemning towards your brother, whether you're still going to love your brother in spite of what he's been doing, whether you're still going to pray for him, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. You realize right now, your brother just got nailed. He just got exposed. He just got caught. He is raw. In his soul, just all the nerves of his soul are just, it's, it's a crisis. It's a horrible time. And maybe for him, for his wife, for his children, I mean, who knows the kind of damage. If it's a pastor, an entire congregation can be right now in uh, a devastation situation. Hmm. So what are you going to do? You're going to pick it up and bear that burden? You're going to bear that burden. But maybe he can't. He's got no strength. You've got to pick him up. Thereby fulfill the law of Christ. All right. Well, that's the uh, issue there. The instrument of stumbling would profit more through their own horrible execution. That's why it's better for a millstone to be cast about your neck. That's why it's better to die the sin unto death. Sin unto death is preferable to tripping up a baby. In Christ, causing one of these little ones to stumble. All right, Luke seventeen three. Goodness. <laughs> Fifty five minutes on point C. How about that? And now uh, five minutes for. Point three, A, B, and C. Point four, A and B. Point five, I think we'll be back next week. Uh, Verse three, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Forgive him. It's only those who continue in sin that you have to continue to that very next step. If you've won your brother, then it's over. Forgive him. Point three, disciples in spiritual combat. And I tell you, we are under the fire right now. Our nation is under it. Our congregation is under it. Disciples in spiritual combat must be alert to forgiveness opportunities. You say, you're supposed to be on the alert for attacks. You're supposed to be on the alert for uh, sin. Supposed to be on the alert for, I mean, yeah, wolves. There's a lot of things you're supposed to be on the alert for. Here's a big one maybe we overlook. Be on the alert for forgiveness opportunities. Be on the alert for forgiveness opportunities. Because 
They can be more damaging than a wolf coming in if you fail to forgive when you, when you need to. They can be more... Um, you know, Yes, you want to be on the alert to uh, immorality. You want to be on the alert to sin. You want to be on the alert to all kinds of things. I want to be, uh, you know, as a pastor, deacons, we want to be on the alert against schisms. We want to be on the alert against uh, false teaching. Sure. We want to be on the alert against all of that, of course. But in addition, don't miss out on this one. Here's another alert item. Be on the alert for forgiveness opportunities. That be on your guard in verse 3 is a present imperative. Continually be on our guard for forgiveness opportunities. Rebuking opportunities and forgiveness opportunities. So we'll, we'll spell this out a little bit more. Obviously a lot more because we've got subpoints A, B, and C. Um, but we're going to see where this relates back to what the Lord was teaching in Matthew 18. We're going to show you the, the application and the epistles that's given to the church age saints and particularly in Colossians. Uh, the book of Colossians that speaks so much about forgiving one another, tender-hearted, and some things there that we want to evaluate for our own walk in the uh, forgiveness opportunities. But when we're under conflict, when our nation is getting hammered, when our church is getting hammered, you know, when you've got nine deacons in a church, and praise God, you've got nine deacons in a church, um, and uh, four of them are unemployed, five of them are unemployed, uh, you know, does this grab your attention any? <laughs> you think we're, we're faced with some struggles at the moment or what else is going on? Um, different things, all right? That's why we pray for our deacons. We pray for the families. We pray for the pastor and his family and everything else that's, uh, that's going on. All right, more on this next week. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, thank you for the principles of what you're showing us in terms of um, why sin and a death is preferable. Why it is that divine discipline bears fruit. Why it is we need to take warning. And, uh, and how it is we are to be intercessors for those and restoring those that uh, have an opportunity to repent. So, Father, uh, make these uh, principles clear to us. Uh, work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. And, and uh, if... Uh, your plan calls for one more week of this church age. Then next week, Father, we look forward to exploring a little bit more about, uh, about these principles of forgiveness. So I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.